WORT Summer Festival is coming. Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. We'll have a wide variety of live music. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more information at WORTFM.org. See you there. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. If you turned on your TV or computer today, you might have seen the first of many digital or video ads for President Biden's 2024 re-election bid. That kicks, off, uh, that kicks off a campaign spending for the fall of 2024 presidential election just one day after President Biden formally announced his re-election campaign. Major Democratic Super PAC Priorita- uh, Priorities USA announced the first round of ads in Wisconsin and five other battleground states. The total cost of the first ad buy? $75 million. One of Wisconsin's top Republican legislators says he's willing to modify his proposal for a flat income tax. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue told reporters yesterday that he'd be amenable to lowering taxes first for several years under the Republicans' banner plan to flatten taxes completely. Wisconsin currently employs a progressive income tax. That means you get taxed between 3.5% up to 7.6%, depending upon your marital status and income, with wealthier individuals being taxed at a higher rate. Under the plan touted this spring by Republicans, Wisconsin would employ a flat tax of 3.5% for all. So that would mean significant gains for Wisconsin's highest earners, but no change for the state's poorest residents. Governor Evers has pledged to veto a flat tax proposal if approved by Republican legislators. Meanwhile, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Republican co-chairs of the state's budget writing committee have indicated they're unlikely to pass a full flat tax this season. COVID ends in just 15 days. At least the federal public health emergency is ending. And with that comes some changes. The state health department outlined today... Uh, First, after the federally purchased supply of vaccines is depleted, those with public or private insurance will continue to be able to access COVID-19 vaccines. The federal government will continue to provide vaccines to people who are uninsured with no cost. Second, at-home tests will no longer be free and available from the government. People on Medicaid will get free tests until September 2024. Third, much like the COVID-19 vaccines, drugs used to treat COVID-19, the treatment that were by the federal government, will remain free until the supply is depleted. The annual spring survey of the influential Wisconsin Conservation Congress saw its lowest participation since 2019. That's according to the Wisconsin Examiner. The annual survey plays an important role in defining the views of the hunting and fishing population when the Department of Natural Resources develops conservation policies. Wisconsin advocate Amy Mueller says the low participation rate was in part due to the fact that 
During the week of the survey, the weather had gotten nice for much of the state. The Congress's chair, Racine resident Bob Bowman, said the drop in participation could have been due to a lack of high-profile questions on the ballot this year. Last year saw the second-highest participation ever, and that survey included a question about Wisconsin's controversial wolf hunts. A Racine judge has dismissed a felony corruption charge brought against the former chair of the Wisconsin Parole Commission. The Racine Journal-Times reports that the case against John Tate II was dismissed yesterday. Tate had been charged earlier this month with using his public position as a city alder for private benefit. Prosecutors had argued Tate unlawfully negotiated the terms of his employment for Racine's new violence interruption coordinator position after approving the creation of the job while he served as president of the Racine Common Council. The complaint alleged that in applying for the job and negotiating for a higher salary and vacation time, he acted in his own financial interest. Tate had been named to serve as Madison's first independent police monitor in October of 2022, but then declined to take the position. University of Wisconsin-Madison police responded to a potential arson in Sterling Hall last night in the central campus area. Shortly after 10 p.m., police responded to a report of smoke coming from two separate rooms on the first floor of the building. Once officers arrived, they found that the two fires involved appeared to have gone out by themselves. The two rooms sustained minor physical and smoke damage, and damage and cleanup costs are estimated to be around $10,000. The department says they believe the fires were started intentionally, but they are actively investigating the incident. A nascent local record shop is shutting down after less than a year in business, reports Tone Madison. Boneset Records opened its doors last August after the closure of Sugar Shack Records on Atwood Avenue. And now the record shop is shutting down its Madison shop in June. It'll be transitioning to an online store after owner Maggie Denman announced a relocation to the Milwaukee area. And those are the evening's headlines. Now onto the rest of the day's top stories. The Madison Metropolitan Sewerage District has been pumping clean and highly treated water into Badger Mill Creek for decades, turning the once small creek into a healthy trout stream. But as phosphorus levels rise, the sewerage district is considering pumping that water elsewhere, and that has conservationists worried about the health of the creek. Our producer, Nate Weggehout, has this. Badger Mill Creek flows south out of Verona and into the Sugar River. It's classified by the state as a trout stream, and according to online kayaking reviews, paddling it involves varied terrain, abundant wildlife, and a 100-yard tunnel. For 25 years, Madison's Sewerage Department has been pumping treated wastewater into the creek. Every day, 3 million gallons of treated wastewater gush into the creek. After leaving the treatment plant, the water is safe for both humans and wildlife, though it contains phosphorus and other chemicals. Now, Madison's sewer district could end that pumping out of concerns of elevated phosphorus levels. That phosphorus is a byproduct of human waste and subsequent wastewater. Martin Griffin is the director of ecosystem services with the sewerage district. He says that in 2018, the State Department of Natural Resources informed the Madison Metro Sewerage District that they needed to lower their phosphorus levels in order to continue operating the wastewater treatment plant. And then they looked at all options on the table. 
when we were looking at these options, we really had three main goals that we wanted to make sure we kept in mind. Uh, the first goal was to obviously pick a solution that would get us into compliance with our permit. That was the number one goal. Number two goal was any option we chose, we wanted to make sure that it would minimize impact or harm to our receiving waters, Badger Mill Creek, our stream. And then our third point we wanted to make sure is that when any, any option we chose, would actually be fiscally responsible to our community rate payers. In the end, the district found that their best option was to stop the flow of water to Badger Mill Creek and divert that flow to another creek they say is better equipped to take on the phosphorus load. But this plan is drawing some concerns from local conservationists who oppose stopping the flow of effluent water into Badger Mill Creek. They call themselves the Badger Mill Creek Preservation Coalition. Last week, the coalition sent a letter to the sewerage district outlining their concerns about the project. One of their top concerns is that without the input of effluent wastewater, the creek's water levels will drop. Earlier this year, the district did run a test to see what would happen if they permanently shut off the water. The test was run in the winter when water levels were already low. Griffin says that when measuring the water levels before and after they shut off the water, the impacts were minimal. You know, obviously, uh, the further upstream you are or the closer to our discharge location, uh, the more you see an impact to the stream flow and depth. But we did notice that that impact was very small. Uh, and when you look at just water depth, it was a few inches up at the headwaters, and then obviously that that impact of stream depth got less and less as he hit to the Sugar River to the point where the confluence of Badger Mill Creek and the Sugar River was not any noticeable change in depth at all. But members of the coalition say that those few inches of change can make a big difference. Lindsay Foy is the executive director of the Upper Sugar River Watershed Association, a nonprofit conservation organization, and a member of the new coalition. When MMSC had their water shut off for their study, there were uh, in-stream habitat improvements that Dane County had paid, I believe, somewhere around $250,000 just a couple years ago to install, and those were completely out of water, meaning they're not functioning. So those, so those investments are essentially null and void if the water is no longer returned to the creek. Foy also takes issue with the sewerage district's test. She says that it wasn't an accurate gauge for what would happen during a real drought, a possibility that is more and more likely under climate change. Multiple municipalities along Badger Mill Creek and the Sugar River, including Verona, Montrose, and Belleville, have passed resolutions urging the sewerage district not to shut off the water to Badger Mill Creek. Foy says that she understands that cleaning the phosphorus out of the wastewater is not an easy project, but she points to other solutions like increased treatment for phosphorus. I realize this is expensive and it would potentially you know, increase rates with rate payers. And I know that that is a concern for them, but it is not impossible. Um, it is a possibility. There, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of options. There's a lot of opportunities to work with stakeholders and partners who care about this issue, especially some such as Dane County and the city of Verona and others who have already invested 
quite heavily into the Badger Mill Creek uh, watershed. The Madison Sewerage Commission, which oversees the Madison Metro Sewerage District, will meet at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning to discuss the Badger Mill Creek project. The Sewerage District will also begin accepting public comment for the project tomorrow until May 8th. They will then hold a public hearing on the project on May 11th for in-person comments on the plan, and a final decision will be made for the project on May 25th. For more information on the Badger Mill Creek project and to submit public comment, go to madsewer.org under the Pollution Prevention tab. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Hout. Earlier this month, former Dane County Supervisor and current State Representative Sheila Stubbs was named as the new Director of Dane County Human Services by County Executive Joe Parisi. That nomination has caused some concern from the head of the Dane County Board, who says that the job is too big to do on top of serving in the legislature. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Lucas Robinson, reporter with the Wisconsin State Journal, who published a story on the matter earlier today. Now, Lucas, what does the job of head of Dane County Human Services all entail? What do they do? Well, sure. Uh, I think it's important to emphasize that the Department of Human Services is the biggest department in Dane County. It has about 800 employees, a budget of several hundred million dollars, and it really is a, the services that are within human services are um, all sorts of things. It's uh, protective services for adults and children. They do referrals to different community partners for mental health issues, uh, addiction. Uh, Another kind of up and coming responsibility they'll also have is working on a new crisis triage center in the county which is basically a 24-7 kind of mental health hospital, so to speak. Uh, That's still in the works, but it is uh, coming up in the coming years. And now your story sort of gets into the the recent history of this position and why Sheila Stubbs was eventually named as the head of the department. Can you sort of go over that for me? So about uh, a year ago, last July, Sean Tessman, the former director of human services quit uh, with a bit of controversy. She said she was resigning because of her relationship with the county board and that people on the board were disrespectful to managers in the county and were too often kind of siding with organized labor on the different issues that came before the board. So since Tessman left, the job has been filled on an interim basis until a couple of weeks ago, when County Executive Parisi appointed Representative Stubbs to take the job, that process now has to go through the county board's uh, different committees before it goes to a full vote of the 37 supervisors. And why did County Executive Parisi name Sheila Stubbs as the new department head? Uh, well, Representative Stubbs, no doubt, is one of the most uh, kind of well-known, well-respected leaders in the community. She has a very long history of working in state and local uh, government. Uh, She's very involved in the city's black community through her church mainly, uh, has been kind of on the forefront of criminal justice reform in the state assembly. So Parisi's rationale for choosing her was kind of her connections that she does have in the community and her kind of several decades of experience working with uh, the county's most vulnerable populations. And now I sort of touched on this earlier, but why is County Board Chair Patrick Miles concerned about her holding this position? Yes, uh, Miles, uh, I don't want to say opposition, but reticence about the nomination is kind of twofold. 
One, there was a video of Stubbs speaking at her church about a week and a half ago where she said she was not going to resign from her seat in the assembly if she is confirmed to lead human services. And Miles thinks that could potentially pose a conflicts of interest because human services gets a lot of funding from the state government. And it kind of, as I outlined earlier, it is a very big department with a lot of different responsibilities and hats. So Miles feels that whoever is the new director of the department should kind of be fully committed to it 100 uh, percent. Miles also took issue with some of the language Stubbs used in her speech at the church. She had a comment basically saying that her and her congregation, she wishes she'd be able to take this job by force, her words, and had another comment that um, kind of supervisors on the board need to be pressured and, quote, shooken up uh, if they oppose her nomination. So those were uh, kind of the two issues Miles uh, took with what is going on. And I'm going to dive into those a little bit more sort of individually here. And let's start off with her serving as a state representative. Uh, What can you sort of tell me about that, about her role as a state representative as it relates to also being the head of the Dane County Human Services? Well, first off, I think it's important to note that she is not legally required to resign from her seat in the assembly. Legally, she can hold both jobs. Um, kind of as I said, I think the issue, Miles and others on the board right now, is simply that there could be conflicts of interest that arise, like I said, with um, the funding that uh, Human Services receives from the state. Now, I don't know if that could look at she recuses herself from votes in the assembly that have to do with uh, Human Services. Uh, I think there's another interesting kind of hypothetical here where if she does resign from the assembly, a special election will be called to fill the seat. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about if she is gone from the assembly and two other Democrats are also not in the assembly for a vote, Republicans in the legislature hypothetically would be able to get veto-proof majorities. So that's all very kind of theoretical. But um, if she is gone and two other Democrats are gone, it does put state Democrats in a bit more of a precarious position in terms of uh, stopping uh, the Republicans. And now you did also mention there that there is a now deleted video of Representative Stubbs uh, making comments before her church about the position. So let's just start off with the video. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what she had to say about being offered the position. Yes. Well, I am unsure the exact date of the video, but it was a few days after County Executive Parisi named her. She basically claims in the video that the board is intentionally blocking, not maybe not blocking, but intentionally refusing to introduce a resolution nominating her to the Department of Human Services. Now, under kind of the board process, that resolution was introduced, and it couldn't have been introduced until the following Thursday when the board had their first meeting since uh, Parisi nominated her. And uh, Miles is kind of named as the person who was doing this, which he definitely denies. Stubbs also says that she's getting a lot of scrutiny in the process because uh, she is a black woman, and a, a black woman has never held the possession of a head of human services full-time before. Uh, so that is uh, what she uh, told her church the other week. And as you mentioned before, uh, County Board Chair Miles also had some concerns about some of the comments made in that video. What can you tell me about that? 
Yes, yes. Uh, well, Stubbs did not say this, but a speaker of the church before her said that the congregation, she used the, you know, I imagine she was referring that they should just, you know, protest and organize in support of the nomination, but she did use the phrase storm the Capitol, which Miles said is very, um, kind of echoes the sort of language that we saw in the run-up to the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol in Washington. And the point Miles made is that this sort of rhetoric, saying things that aren't necessarily true about how the county board works, that and invoking the January 6th insurrection uh, basically kind of poses a threat to uh, elected officials and their safety. That is what Miles said. And so what comes next in this process? What's the next step here? So uh, the process, uh, the, her nomination to lead human services uh, will go through the kind of basic confirmation uh, process with the county board. Uh, tomorrow it will be before the Health and Human Needs Committee, which Stubbs uh, used to chair when she was on the board. From there, I know it goes to the board's personnel and finance committee, and those committees will make their decision. They will recommend that her nomination be approved or they will recommend that it be denied. And then at some point within the next few weeks, those recommendations will go before the full board and they will vote on whether to confirm her to lead human services. I've been talking with Lucas Robinson, reporter with the Wisconsin State Journal, about the controversy surrounding Representative Sheila Stubbs being named the new head of Dane County Human Services. Now, you can read Lucas's full reporting on the matter online over at Madison.com. Lucas, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much. It was a good conversation. Appreciate it. After this interview was recorded, the county executive told Channel 3000 News that Representative Stubbs would submit a letter of resignation to the state assembly as soon as her appointment to head the Human Services Department is approved. time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. This week is National Library Week, an annual celebration highlighting the roles libraries and librarians play in our communities. Earlier this week, the American Library Association released their annual State of the Libraries report, showing that while libraries are facing a litany of challenges, they are still proving that they are vital to communities across the nation. Earlier today, 8 o'clock Buzz host Jan Miyasaki spoke with Tana Elias, Digital Services and Marketing Manager with the Madison Public Library, about how they are celebrating this week and why they decided to go fine-free in 2020. I guess I wanted to you know, talk about what's going on, but today is Library Outreach Day, correct? Can you tell folks about what's going on? Yeah, so um, in general, today is Library Outreach Day. We have a dream bus, uh, which goes to about 14 different locations around the city every day. So we're kind of focusing on the dream bus this week. It's one of many library services that we offer to try to take the library out into the community. You know, in the last decade, um, Madison Public Library and many public libraries have focused on 
not only making sure that service within the library is serving as many people as possible, but getting those books and resources and, and services out to anyone in the community. And so using things like the Dream Bus or um, bookmobiles and other places or going to events to let people know um, outside of the library walls what's happening inside the library has been really important. So the Dream Bus is out in the community weekly, right? All in a number of communities. Tell folks about that because I, I see it. Yeah, so we go out to um, communities that we've identified that has a population that have a hard time getting to the library. It might be due to transportation. It might be due to having um, a lot of children and not as good bus access uh, directly from that neighborhood to the library. So we work with um, community centers and, and schools and other organizations throughout the city to host the Dream Bus for usually like a 30 to 45 minute stop. And then the Dream Bus goes to other uh, locations as well on request as much as we can staff. So we have set stops every week and then we uh, go to special events like we'll be going to Juneteenth this summer and other you know community festivals and parades. So look for the Dream Bus, but today is, is the Library Outreach Day. But Tana, tell folks about this week all together. Some events have already passed. I think the 2023 State of America's Libraries Report is, is, is important reading. Can you talk about this week and you know why um, we want to highlight the value of libraries, librarians, those who work in libraries? Well, we think that, like you said, every day should be right to read day. (laughs) And uh, libraries are open almost every day. And we really feel like having a special week helps us highlight our importance in the community. But again, you know, every day should be National Library Day, right? Because libraries are important. They connect people to resources that they need to fill, you know, to fulfill their lives. Anything from teaching their child to learn how to read to, you know, going through that first time home buying process process or navigating life's difficult things, you know, divorce or uh, learning that you have a medical condition, you can use um, library resources to educate yourself and to get yourself through some of those hard times and also to celebrate those wonderful times of, you know, having a a child who's learning and growing and, and helping them learn how to read. We help others learn how to read through partnerships with uh, organizations like the Literacy Network and through multiple um, partnerships with the schools to help teachers kind of extend their own resources and um, reach others in the community. So we do feel that libraries, obviously we're biased because we work in libraries, but we feel that libraries are a really important resource in the community. And uh, it's important that everybody um, know that those resources are available to them. I love libraries. I love librarians. Who knew that we would be in a time where we would have to be really taking action to support them? You know, we, we, we need to continuously support with resources, but politically support them. We are lucky in Madison um, that we do have strong support. We have strong support locally and through the state. That is not true of many public libraries. So one kind of interesting fact uh, is that there were 1,269 attempts to ban or restrict library materials in 2022. And that's not in Madison, that's nationwide. But that is a record high from when the American Library Association started tracking attempts to ban or restrict library materials. And I think it gets to some of the divides in our culture politically. 
So it's really important to think about your role in supporting libraries. Um, make sure that if you're in contact with your alder or your um, state representatives that you're letting them know how libraries are important to you. You know, we rely on city and state funding for our the majority of our services, although we have a wonderful Madison Public Library Foundation that raises additional funds for many of the, the great programs that we do as well. But it's really important to, to think about supporting your library, not just this week, but every week. And, and then Friday, share your library story. Can you tell folks about that? Yeah, we have a campaign all week long to share your library story. Tell us what you appreciate about libraries. You know, we we certainly um, appreciate our library staff and, and, you know, let us know what, what you appreciate about your local library, whether it's an, an interaction with the staff person, whether it's access to one of those books on the band list, um, whether it's, you know, something else. How has the library helped you? How has our service helped you? You know, come in. We have postcards or we have post-its. We're encouraging people to share their story on social media, in person, and, and let us know, like, how the library is important to you. I work in marketing, so we're going to be using some of those quotes for our marketing throughout the year. But it also really helps our library staff know how they're appreciated. You know, we, we, we get a lot of materials out the door for people every day, and it's really exciting to hear um, during this week because we've done this campaign a couple of years. It's really great to hear, like, how that's appreciated and to, to get those thank yous from our community and to share those with our staff and let them know that their work matters. Now the Madison Library is fine-free. Can you tell folks about that? We went fine-free in 2020, and um, at that time, we waived all the existing fines. It was a lot of money, but we felt it was really important to the community to know that there are circumstances that prevent you from getting something back on time. We've all been there. We all know that, you know, sometimes you're a week late or sometimes you lose a book or sometimes you're just like right at the end of the story and you want to get to the end and you, you know, you're willing to pay that extra 25 or 50 cents. But we know that some people aren't able to to pay those fines. And so we wanted to remove barriers to um, people using the library. And we joined kind of a nationwide um, movement to go fine free. It was a significant portion of our budget, but we were assisted by the city that first year when we made the change. And then uh, we have just adjusted to make sure that we're able to continue to provide the great service without the, it was about, we were at about $220,000 a year in our budget coming from fines. But again, we felt it was important to the community to let them know that it's it's okay to be a couple of days late if you're right in the middle of the story or, you know, you can't get to the library until Thursday, even though your item is due on Monday. So we did go find free um, in 2020. That was a library board decision. And really the only charge that people have for using the library now is if a material um, is completely lost. You know, your your dog ate it or as happened to me when you're uh, traveling, you leave something behind and you're not able to, to have it sent to you. You know, we know that those things do happen and we do have to charge for lost material. But if you're a few days late now, there's, there's no penalty. We did see um, when we did our research in making that decision that everybody throughout the community had fines, but the people who had $20 or more of fines, which prevented them from checking out additional material, those were kind of targeted at lower income areas. 
So we were able to see that that our policy of assessing fines was really affecting some communities more than others. And so by lifting that barrier, we wanted to make it clear that library access was really for everyone and kind of take away that that worry about being late or not being able to return your materials on time. That was 8 o'clock Buzz host Jan Miyasaki talking with Tana Elias with the Madison Public Library about National Library Week. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. Well, this is our fifth day in a row now with temperatures in double digits below normal. And uh, while we'll be warmer the next couple of days, I'm not quite sure we're going to make it above normal, technically speaking. I said on the Monday morning forecast, I thought we'd remain below normal, actually, throughout through the end of the month. Saturday and Sunday should uh, be no problem in that regard, but t- uh, tomorrow and Friday might come close. Uh, incidentally, bo- uh, normal in this context is a high temperature of 62 and a low temperature of 40. Our cold second half of April can be attributed to Wisconsin having come underneath a long-wave trough position in the upper air, which has meant that any passing short-wave troughs and the low-level circulations that they tend to spin up tend to get stuck in place over us with their leftward-spinning energy producing upward motion and cooling and condensation, as happens in the northern hemisphere. So we've had plenty of uh, cloud cover and occasional rain uh, to additionally dampen the temperatures and the cool air that's already been over us for the past 10 days. And our situation has not been helped by the development of an omega block, as it's called, in the upper winds downstream of us now. This feature is visible on the water vapor imagery of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage. And if you do have a look at it, you'll get some idea where the omega part comes into it. The uh, U-shaped upper trough that's uh, been sitting over the eastern third of North America over this past week, or week and a half actually, has a rounded, more circular cutoff circulation down in its pit over the Great Lakes. And there's an almost identical trough to it out to our east, out over the western Atlantic Ocean, and in between the two and up to the north over the Ungava Peninsula and the Davis Strait area is a rightward-turning blob of warm air, an upper ridge, And the circulation around those three features, which are shaped together like the Greek letter omega, tends to hold them all in a stable, unmoving pattern, which is why it's called an omega block. You might remember it was a Rex block, a similar feature minus one of the troughs that kept us so warm back during the second week of the month before the cold set in on us with such ferocity. So our luck can obviously rise or fall depending upon, uh, well, uh, which side of the block we end up on, so to speak. Uh, we'll have to. Uh, we'll have a week episode of shortwave ridging trying to press over us from the northwest tomorrow and Friday. But that brief injection of warm air is ultimately going to end up uh, simply re-energizing the upper low over this part of the continent. Though it will bump the gyre uh, temporarily eastward for a day or two. The incoming ridge is also visible on the water vapor, incidentally, cascading at us across the Dakotas and Minnesota currently. It does appear that surface low pressure development as warm and cold air begin to swirl together will transpire in a slightly different fashion to the way it had looked back on Monday. A stronger wave that's evident in the water vapor imagery over uh, North Texas or over the panhandle down there uh, will be ejecting eastward through the lower Mississippi Valley tomorrow before it then lifts northeastward and north up towards about Lake Huron Friday. 
And that system's going to tie up a lot of the Gulf moisture that might otherwise lift northward and be lifted up and over a warm front that will be attendant to the incoming northern stream low that will be diving into this area from the Dakotas and Minnesota tomorrow. So Friday's now looking to stay uh, mostly or entirely dry the way it's appearing. The uh, cold front approaching with the second low on Saturday morning should bring us a wave of showers at that time, followed by additional showers probably through the weekend as the two lows swirl together, the one from Lake Huron and the one to our west. And the overall low will then move backwards westward over us for much of Sunday and Monday, so cool and cloudy into early next week. But back to tonight, uh, whatever remaining cumulus are up in the sky should continue to dissipate through the evening with just uh, a few passing high clouds. Then after that, through the overnight period, temperatures will drop back to the mid-30s on southeasterly winds at 3 to 7 miles per hour. Passing high and mid-level clouds tomorrow as warmer air comes in should uh, still admit enough sunshine to get us up into the low 60s with aid from uh, increasing south to southwest winds, which will come up to 8 to 15 miles per hour. We'll continue to see some uh, passing high clouds overnight with a low temperature in the uh, 40-degree range on lighter southeasterly winds. And Friday should be a similar day, but with uh, increasing cloud cover, possibly including some lower clouds later in the day. That'll depend in part on whether we back our winds more east or northeasterly during the day. The temperatures should make the lower mid-60s in any case. And winds will be backing east and northeast then overnight before uh, and uh, showers are likely to move in from the west by dawn on Saturday. Temperatures will drop to the lower mid 40s overnight but then recover uh, only minimally to the low 50s on Saturday with passing showers and winds will be backing north and northwesterly as the low pressure circulations combine to our northeast. And those northwesterly winds will help to draw some drier and colder low-level air into Wisconsin, and that may limit the precipitation totals on Saturday, maybe just to a few hundredths of an inch every now and again. But as the mid-level low strengthens overhead uh, uh, into Sunday, we should see rain production turn back on, and the temperatures Sunday will hold just in the upper 40s then, the way it appears, with a little warming actually going into Monday as well. It is currently 51 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 26. Uh, just a couple of uh, cumulus up at about 6,000 feet currently, mostly clear now above the station with winds out of the west at about 5 miles per hour. And the uh, barometer reading is at 29, uh, 30, excuse me, 30.17 inches of mercury and steady. We go now to April 1964, when the civil rights movement was in full swing. Developers announced ambitious plans, and a founder of rock and roll came to town. Stu Levitan has all the details from 59 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, April 1964. It's an active time for the civil rights movement. As the month opens, members of the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, are continuing their boycott and picketing of the Sears store on East Washington Avenue, where a maintenance worker is the only black person among the store's 321 employees. 
Core Publicity Director Leah Zeldin says many customers have canceled their store charge accounts in support of Core's demand the store hire more black workers, especially in customer-facing positions. Although Core does not file a formal complaint with the Equal Opportunities Commission, the EOC holds a public hearing under its plenary power to investigate possible discrimination. Testimony is compelling, but inconclusive. When the EOC closes its file without action on April 14th, Sears has three full-time and four part-time black employees. Core President Silas Norman congratulates the store and urges it to do more. The country's most prominent opponent of the civil rights bill being debated in Congress, Alabama Governor George Wallace, speaks to the Madison Exchange Club on April 2nd, campaigning for the Democratic presidential nomination. As about 20 core members protest in the cold rain in front of the Cuba Club restaurant, the staunch segregationist is given a warm reception inside. Wallace tells club members he is not a racist and draws applause for his attack on the pending civil rights bill as something that, quote, will destroy the constitutional rights of everybody. And one of the most forceful advocates for the legislation comes to town on the 25th for a rally sponsored by the Madison Committee for Civil Rights. The Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, a co-founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, rouses a Capitol Square crowd of about 500 with his emphatic call for freedom now. UW freshman Tracy Nelson, the young folk blues singer from Shorewood Hills, is among the entertainers. The first demonstration to disrupt the Wisconsin legislature takes place two days later, when about 30 college and high school students from the Madison Corps chapter display unauthorized signs in the balcony of the assembly chambers calling for a vote on a fair housing bill. After the assembly, Sergeant Arms brusquely confiscates several signs. The group locks arms and stands to sing, We Shall Overcome, as the annoyed assembly adjourns. There are no arrests as the group marches out singing. Core Chapter Chair Silas Norman opposes the action and resigns and leaves about a month later for the Selma Literacy Project. He is succeeded by Bortai Scudder, daughter of British modernist poet Basil Bunting. Earlier this decade, the Madison Redevelopment Authority had brushed off as inconsequential protests from residents of the old Greenbush neighborhood who were angry that their homes and businesses had been seized for the Triangle Urban Renewal Project. But when the MRA started looking to buy property around the university, political opposition became a threat. A group composed largely of small property owners called the Madison Homeowners Association filed almost 8,000 signatures and got a referendum on the April ballot to, quote, terminate all urban renewal activities and abolish the MRA. The entire political establishment, Mayor Henry Reynolds, University President Fred Harvey Harrington, and both newspapers all forcefully opposed the referendum. But on April 7th, the vote comes down to the last precinct reporting. With 36,665 votes cast, representing about 70% of registered voters, the MRA survives by 367 votes, 18,516 to 18,149. The Ninth Ward, home of the controversial Triangle and Brittingham projects, and the Near East Side Sixth Ward, where many are bitterly opposed to an ongoing study of the Marquette neighborhood, both vote heavily to end all renewal activities, while the 14th Ward, 
where residents favor the South Madison project, votes heavily to continue. It's strong support from the west side that keeps the MRA alive. But urban renewal itself kills the political careers of two east side incumbent alders, including the 6th Ward alder who sponsored the MRA's study of the neighborhood. The MRA's public relations consultant later says they should have built low-cost public housing as their first project next to Brittingham Park rather than the market-rate apartments they approved. On April 17th and 18th, while the legendary Bo Diddley rocks the military ball in Great Hall with Ken Adamani's band The Night Trains on the Bill on Friday night, folk singer Guy Karawan, who first popularized We Shall Overcome, is singing for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee at the University YMCA. Saturday night, it's a Bo Diddley album and nickel bags of popcorn for the thousand who pack Great Hall for the Student Peace Center's 8th Annual anti-mill ball. There's great live music, too, for the largest turnout yet, Tracy Nelson sitting in with the Johnny Cal Blues Band. April 24th is quite a day for Madison Properties Incorporated, the development firm run by broadcast executive Gerald Bartell and developer Robert Brooks. In the morning, they reveal a $12 million project consisting of 26 buildings along a one-mile stretch of University Avenue with 650 apartments, a 200-room Ramada Inn, plus commercial and office space. And just a few hours later, they announce plans to build a 10-story, 225-room Holiday Inn in the 400 block of State Street. It would be the second attempt to build a hotel there where Victor Music burned down in December 1961. Bartell says he has an accepted offer from Meyer Victor and hopes to begin construction by late July. Ultimately, neither of the two hotels is built, but much of the University Avenue project is. And on the night of April 24th, the Common Council sets the city's smoking age at 16. Figuring that smoking and drinking beer should have the same legal age, the council had initially set the smoking age at 18. But after the Madison Youth Council calls this an infringement of personal liberty and urges education rather than enforcement, the council reverses its decision and lowers the legal age by two years. Madison Youth Council Vice President Eugene Parks noting that many aldermen smoke during the meeting, says his group doesn't condone smoking, quote, but we feel this is the responsibility of the youth and his parents. Nadine Goff, editor of the Central High School Mirror, tells the council that a survey shows that almost 30% of students at Central Senior High and nearly 20% of students at Central Junior High smoke or had smoked. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Most of these news shows that you hear in the evening are put together by volunteers, and we could use a couple of more reporters if you're interested in volunteering for the local news. WORT is a wonderful place to volunteer, and we provide all the training if you haven't been involved in radio. So get in touch with the station during business hours if you're interested. Your headline writer this evening was David Aaron. Special thanks to feature contributors Jan Miyasaki from the 8 O'Clock Buzz and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan was our on-air engineer this evening. Nate Weggy helped produce the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. 
And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>